0: Well, good morning, beloved church, and I mean that. Love you so much, and delighted to open God's word with you now as we, uh, as we come to our time of, of teaching. And as we also finish our series in Romans, I, I feel a little bit like a Midwest spring breaker in Florida. We're savoring every last moment here in the book of Romans. Our series is, uh, what, two, three weeks from being done. And we are here in chapter 16, uh, savoring today five verses that include eight Corinthian names, one Jesus quotation, and one prophecy about the archenemy of God. Doesn't this sound interesting? Indeed, this is what we have before us today. And I'll just be honest with you, uh, it doesn't outline well. Okay, so I don't have any clever outline for this one. You get into these kind of chapters and you're like, as a preacher, okay, we'll just take it as it is and that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, A reminder as we do that we saw last week a very abrupt warning that Paul gives to uh, the Roman church and through the scriptures to us as well. You know, you're reading Romans 16 and you're like, it's kind of like a Christmas card you know, greet these people, and beloved these people, and so good to see you people, and then all of a sudden you get to these verses, he's like, look out! And what are we to look out for? We're to look out for what he describes as divisive people in the church, and doctrinally deviant teachers in the church, and he makes it clear that uh, these people will not show up and say, hi, I'm a false teacher, no. They are going to be very appealing in their personality. They're going to be very attractive in their uh, sort of demeanor. They're smooth talkers. Uh, These are the sorts of people that draw people away. And Paul warns against these sorts of people. Look out for them and avoid them. And we pick it up now in verse 19. Here he says this. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. That is our text here this morning. So we begin with the fact that uh, here the Corinthians are sending the Romans some love. Okay, sending them love. The Corinthians love the Roman Christians. There's eight names that are listed here. All of them... Uh, presumably residents of Corinth, all of them through the letter sending greetings to the Corinthian, I'm sorry, the, the Roman Christians, and uh, what's ironic here is that probably none of them know any of them. Maybe Aquila and Priscilla, possibly, but uh, these are Corinthian Christians who know about these Roman Christians, and they're, they, they're just sending love to them, sending greetings to them, uh, Why would they do it, and here's why. There's a formula that God's people have enjoyed for 2,000 years now, and that formula is this. If I am loved by God, and I am saved by Jesus, and you are loved by God, and you are saved by Jesus, that means that I heart you. That's the formula. Anybody that God has loved and Jesus died for is somebody that since I'm an object of God's love and, and believe Jesus died for me, that person is not just a random person, this is somebody now who is an object of divine love and therefore an object of my love. That's Christian love for one another. You might look around right now and say, okay, well that's somebody over there that I'm, I'm called to love. And similarly, we could, we could greet a church and you know, pick your country, Australia, that none of us know any of them, but we know them to be a Bible-believing, gospel-believing church, we could send them loving, tender greetings. And it doesn't have to be just words for us. We genuinely love them, and we can be confident of their love for us. There is this wonderful instant rapport that God's people have with each other. This is why when you're on a trip or somewhere, you know, out of the community and you happen for some reason to discover that these other people that are on the the cruise or next to you at the restaurant, you see them pray before you're like, oh, are you, you know, you kind of have that, I wish we had a secret handshake or something, but you're kind of like, so are you, you know, and they're like, yeah, we're like, yeah, right? And there's this rapport and, Now you feel a connection with them, and indeed there is a connection. We are united in the body of Christ. We are united by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians that there's one faith, one spirit, one baptism. These are all commonalities that we have with anybody that is also a Christian. And that's what lies under these uh, warm greetings that that are being shared is same gospel, same Savior, I heart you, and you heart me. That's the formula. Now, let's look at a few highlights here in some of these names. We're not gonna look at all of them, but we begin with Timothy. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings. Timothy, probably the most famous name on this list, and by the way, a name that we're gonna be looking at on Mother's Day, which is in two weeks, and talking about the influence of Timothy's own mother and grandmother, on, uh, on his life. But Timothy, who's Timothy? Timothy is Paul's right-hand guy. Timothy is a, uh, a man that uh, Paul says he calls his beloved and faithful child, 1 Corinthians 4. So Timothy, right-hand man, uh, Timothy was his go-to guy, For special assignments, obviously a famous guy in church history, I'll note to you that there is not a first and second Titus, there is not a first and second Philemon, but there is a first and second Timothy, to give you an idea of uh, the importance of of Timothy. Very warmly received Timothy. Now, we skip down to Tertius. That's probably a name that you've not uh, come across very often, but notice what Tertius says. First person, I... Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Wait a second. I thought Paul wrote Romans. Haven't we been talking about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul? And now, lo and behold, Tertius. Like, what's going on here? Is Tertius the ghostwriter and, and Paul's just the big name that they put on the book? Or is Paul actually involved in writing it? And what we have here is an ancient practice that involved a teacher and a scribe or a secretary who essentially would write down everything that they, that they say. And Tertius was that for Paul in the book of Romans. Uh, he wrote Paul. So Paul dictated, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Tertius wrote it down. Kind of like, uh, you know, my, my sermon here that I have. You know, who wrote this? I could say HP Printer wrote this because I do not have that good a handwriting, trust me. But we all would understand that the printer wrote it because it was fed information from a computer, and the computer was fed information from my fingers, and my fingers were fed information from my my brain, and that's how this sermon came to be. And similarly, Tertius is the sort of middleman. The content is from Paul, and uh, the, the actual writing is from Tertius. This is how Paul possibly did all of his letters. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Uh, but uh, probably what Paul did is he would, he would dictate these letters. But we know he would do something often at the end of the letter. Here's sec, 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul says this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write so presumably paul would get to the near the end of the letter and then he would pause tertius or whoever it was would hand him the quill and he would with his own handwriting write the end of the letter kind of fascinating isn't it as a way to authenticate it's almost like his signature at the end of the letter yes indeed this is from the apostle paul In fact, he says in Galatians uh, 6, he writes this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Large letters. And this has led to speculation. You know, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians the thorn in his flesh. Maybe you've heard about Paul's thorn in the flesh. That he asked God three times to take away from him, but God didn't. And so then Paul, you know, sort of uh, glories in his weakness and... The fact that he writes large letters, he says in Galatians, has made people think that possibly what Paul struggled with was some kind of an eyesight ailment. You know, maybe uh, his eyes went bad. He had, you know, glaucoma or whatever it would be. We don't know for sure, uh, but there were no corrective lenses. There was no LASIK surgery. There was no ophthalmologist, no optometrist. It, when your eyes in the ancient world, when your eyes went bad, they went bad, okay? How many of us would be living a very different life if we didn't have these? I know that I would. I'd be looking out at, I'd be be going like this, and then I'd be looking at you. Uh, And you would just be blurry, and some of you would look better that way. (laughs) But praise God for glasses. The world is a very clear place because of it. Okay, so, kind of interesting here. Paul writes, Tertius Writes, or Paul speaks, Tertius writes it down. And I want to just pause and note this is another reason to be astonished at the letter we call Romans. Paul spoke it, Tertius wrote it, and what we have before us is is what they produced. Now, you know how I do my sermons? I write them, I cut, I copy, I paste. I rearrange, I move this around, and what you're getting right now is a highly edited version of the first take. My first take sermons, are horrible. They really are. And maybe some of them remain that way, you might say. But I do try to edit and refine as that, you know, somebody said, there are no books that are written, there are only books that are rewritten. And similarly, sermons, there's no sermons that are written, there are only sermons that are rewritten. But back in this day, imagine Paul getting to like chapter 15 and going, oh, you know what, I wish I'd have said something different in chapter 3. Tertius, let's go back to that. Like, he's like, uh, you know, he wrote the whole thing down. When you look at Romans and the tightness of the theological argument and the reasoning, such that Harvard and Yale, up till not so long ago, studied logic by studying the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, and to realize he did it in one take, a one take wonder, another reason to be like, whoa, Romans, and whoa, this is what the inspiration of the Holy Spirit produces, okay? Humanly speaking, it's very difficult to imagine anybody writing this in one take. But you include the Holy Spirit, what do you have? Perfection. Perfection. An amazing, amazing letter. All right, now let's pull back from uh, the sort of greeting and care and the individual names, and I want to just emphasize again what we did two weeks ago when we looked at all the names at the beginning of chapter 16. It's again a reminder to us That the church is people. Here we have another list of names, and these were real people, and they had lives like you and me, and challenges and difficulties and joys and sorrows, and these are real people. The church is not the building. Remember, okay, this is the building, this is the steeple. Never forget that the church is people. And we see that again by seeing people just like us here in chapter 16 sending their greetings to Rome. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice in you. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice in you. I don't know if I know of a single modern church that is by reputation known for their obedience. Think of a church, the last time you heard somebody describe any church, What's it like? They really obey there. I never hear that, okay? Now, this last year, we tried, right? We tried to obey the scriptures, submitting to the authorities that are over us in this whole crazy year that we've had. And we continue to try to do that. But when you think about what churches typically sort of praise themselves for or market themselves for, you know, we've got amazing ministry programming. We've, we've got awesome music. You know, our, our facility is this and whatever. Nobody ever says, we're really good at obeying here. It's not something that, and even people that are looking for a church, what are you looking for in a church? I want this and I want that. When was the last time somebody came to one of our, you know, uh, guest receptions and said, I'm looking for a very obedient church? And I just say that to show you maybe how far we've come from the kind of values that an apostle has for what a quality church is versus our modern way of looking and evaluating churches. How do we know what a good church is? One of the qualities we see here is obedience. I wonder if anybody would say that about our church. Hey, you go to Bethel Church? Tell me about it. Well, they're real serious about obedience over there. And yet, here the Apostle Paul says he rejoices over the obedience of the Roman church. This was the reputation that they had. And Paul admired it. Okay, He admired it. He started with obedience in chapter 1. It's been a long time. I don't expect you to remember. But Romans 1, 5, he says this. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Obedience. What is obedience? Obedience is conformity to the moral law of God, conformity to the will of God. It is a response, it is a byproduct of saving faith. Don't get this wrong. Okay? Obedience is not the, the condition of our salvation, it is the consequence of our salvation. It is not the root of our salvation, it is the fruit of of our salvation. We do not obey in order to be saved. We obey because we are saved. And after being saved, all of a sudden now, pleasing God and the will of God and the word of God become priorities that before becoming a Christian, we could, you know, I don't give a rip about that. But all of a sudden now, I care about what God thinks. Why? Because this is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so obedience is as the old kids song said, the very best way to show that you believe. Remember that song? O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I don't know if we sing that here anymore, but uh, Jennifer, we need to get our girls singing that more often, I think. <laughs> so hopefully, like in Rome, there's a lot of obedience to rejoice in here at Bethel Church in Northwest Indiana. Verse 19, and now we're getting kind of into the core of what I want to talk with you about today. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now I want you to notice in these two sentences that they there, there is a correlation here. Both of them are, have to do with the Christian's relationship with evil, okay? The first one is uh, the, the evil world, and the second one is the evil one. How do we live in the world, which is so evil, and how do we live uh, with the presence of the evil one and all that he is seeking to do and to destroy? So let's start by talking about what is evil, I don't know if you ever thought about that. What what is actually evil? This is a moral, kind of a metaphysical type question. Evil is the opposite of good. Safe to say. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is the is the void of anything that is like the character of God. It is the opposite of what is upright and morally beautiful. The Bible talks a lot about the image of light with respect to this. So God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. What does that mean? He is all good. There is no evil at all, zero, in the character of God. So we are called the children of the light, 1 John. We're called to walk in the light, not in darkness. Evil is darkness, If we were to track the story of evil, evil entered the heart of Satan. And he rebelled against God. And he led, then. and then evil kind of rippled out to the fallen angels. And through Satan then, it rippled into the heart of Eve and Adam in the temptation. And it's continued to ripple to us here today. Which leads to, a 19-year-old boy walking into a FedEx and murdering people and such things, big and small, like that. There is no doubt that evil is present in the world here today. Read the paper, read the news. Who knows what's going to happen this week? What do we think when we see that? There is nothing good about it. It is the absence of anything morally upright and good. It is the presence of all that is the opposite of what God is like. So we are called to not walk in darkness, but to walk in the light, which leads to the question, how do we do that when there is prevalent evil all around us? It is promoted in the culture around us. How do we live in the world and not be of the world? And this verse uh, gives some simple but very wonderful advice. He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good. So we, we start with a posture towards what is good and beautiful, what is pleasing to God, and on that side of things, we are to be all in. We are to be, you know, to be wise about something is to be deeply knowledgeable about it, to be able to apply it practically to your life. And the good here is all things consistent with God's will, his word, and his world. Do you remember when he got done creating the, the cosmos, what did he do? He paused, he stepped back, and he said, it is, it is very good. Now, it's broken because of sin, but the, there's the shards, the remnants of that beautiful creation still around us, speaking of the character of God. So Paul says here, listen, you gotta, you gotta fill the bucket of your heart with good things. Fill the bucket of your mind with beautiful things. Fill it up to the max. Here's how he says it in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is admirable, whatever is uh, or honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, what are we to do with those things? Think about those things. Meditate on those things. Fill the bucket of your mind with things that ennoble the soul and and uh, uplift the spirit. Fill your heart as best you can with things that please God and the things of God. And that, of course, includes the scriptures, and it includes so many other things, though. I, I appeal to you often to you know watch the sunset and think about God and uh, live your life and enjoy the pleasures of this world and connect them to God. And we talk about this a lot, but if I may just do this a little bit more. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You realize this is a wonderful defense against the power of evil in our life. Because when I am, When I am experiencing the good gifts of God in this world and I am connecting them as an act of worship to God, I am filling my mind and my heart with holy and good things. My desires are kind of tracking after the things that God would be pleased with. Go deep with those things. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 9, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Snakes, by reputation, are very shrewd and very clever. You know, they sort of hide in the weeds and wham, out they come. That's that's And, and towards wisdom, we're to be shrewd and careful and wham. But when it comes to evil, dove, da 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 da, da. A sign of purity, a sign of sort of like lightness. That's what Jesus said. Poor atheist experiences these things, there's no connection to the goodness of God. He eats the medium rare steak, enjoys the loaded potato, perhaps a side of asparagus, the fresh salad, the luscious strawberry pie. He licks his lips, wipes his face, and he has nobody to say thank you to. <laughs> but we are Christians and as one small example is we have that kind of moment to to think, you know what, God loves me, and look at this experience that I'm having. And we can do that with our steak, with our round of golf, with our freshly mowed yard. I'm to be wise towards what is good, to look at the world theologically, to connect all of this to who God is and to have a desire in my heart to do his will. Remember Romans 12:1? His good, pleasing, perfect will, therefore, get on the altar and just offer all that you are to God as a sacrifice. These are all the same kinds of things. They all flow in the direction of somebody who has Jesus enthroned in their heart, whose desire, as best they can, is to please God. And we daily fill our hearts and our minds with truths that uplift us and remind us of the gospel and the love of God and the goodness of God and and to be involved in the work and the mission of God and to just be all that stuff. Like, be wise and deep about all that stuff. Fill your life and your mind with that stuff. That's what he's saying. The opposite of that stuff is evil stuff, the opposite of that stuff is darkness, the opposite of that stuff are things that drag me down and pull away my joy in Jesus and focus on me and uplift my pride and make me more sort of self-sufficient and the opposite of all that is, is evil. It's evil, it's darkness, it's profaneness, it is perversion. Friends, listen, Satan has never made anything. He is a parasite. All he can do is take the good things that God has made and declared and spoken and pervert them and distort them. Imagine a beautiful building that God has made. Satan's the graffiti artist. He thinks what he's doing is good, but it just somehow detracts from the beauty of what God has made. And what are we to do towards evil? He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Here's the other side of this. Our posture towards what's good is more, 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 more. Our posture towards what is evil is like, eh, I want to get away from this. I want to be pure in the eyes of God. And this does not mean by the way that we are you know, ostriches that just stick our head in the sand and go, I hear nothing. I don't know nothing. We live in the world. To live in the world is to be exposed to evil and, and, and perversion and profanity and vulgarity and Of course, we believe that this is in our hearts as well. This is the flesh that Paul talks so much about in Romans. The good that I would I do, not the evil which I would not that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, none of us are beyond any of these things. The seeds of the sins of all men lie within my own heart, as McShane said. So there is no sort of like, oh, look at us. We're, you know, amazing uh, pure doves in this world. No. Sin is in my heart and evil is in my heart and it's in yours as well. This is why this is critical. That I actively and intentionally strive for a relationship towards the things that are pleasing to Satan, not to God, where I am I am striving for innocence in these things. Here's how Luther said it. He says, I can't stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. Now, some of you, years ago, that would have made sense. It doesn't anymore, because you have no hair. But imagine that. I can keep the birds from making a nest in my head. I have control over that. Here's Philip's translation of this verse. I want to see you experts in good and not even beginners in evil. So with good things, the things of God, PhD, postgraduate work. I'm deep in those things. But the world's vulgarity and evil, I'm a preschooler. And that's all that I want to be. I don't want advanced degrees in evil. I want advanced degrees in good. You get the idea here, okay? I'll do another analogy. When it comes to uh, good things, I'm swimming in the deep end. When it comes to evil things, I'm not dipping my toe in the water. I'm a dove with those things. I have such a picture of this in my own family right now with two young daughters. They are truly, I mean, they're sinners. I can debate which side of the family they got that from, but you all know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so they're sinners. I don't mean to overstate this, but they are largely innocent with respect to a lot of, of the vulgarity of the world around us. Like, they don't even, they don't even, they don't know what profanity is because they don't know what words are supposed to be dirty, Yet Now that day is coming and I I grieve the day where I have to sit down with them and say, here are the profane words and this is what they mean. And I I want you to hear it from me, not from your friend at school. And this is why we don't say those things. And this is why it's a distortion of the beautiful things that God has made. I dread that day. I know that day is coming. But right now, it just goes over their head. You know, they may hear the word or whatever, like, oh, it it means nothing to them. And I love that, they are at that, somewhat innocent stage. But we live in a very profane world. This world does not love the light. That's what Jesus said. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are are evil. The world that we live in, it loves the rude. It loves the the, uh, banal. It loves the vulgar. It loves scatological talk. Delights in scatology, is that the word? (laughs) Loves that. Giggles at it, snickers at it. It snickers at sex. It takes no delight whatsoever in the pure marital bed. But any sex outside of the pure marital bed, it delights in it and revels in it. There is nothing sacred in the world. Everything's crude and rude and they view us as prudes. In fact, this is my translation of the verse. Toward good, be a dude. Towards evil, be a prude. You're only gonna get that here at Bethel Church, I promise you. You know, I remember when I was in junior high, now they call it middle school, but I went to uh, Holmes Junior High, and the culture of that school was like what I'm talking about. And I remember in junior high, the, the, uh, the thought that I had was, let me backtrack a little bit. So I played sports uh, growing up, and in junior high, that meant practice after school. Inevitably, that meant like, carpooling parents, getting you know teammates home after practice and all of this. And so inevitably... I would have teammates that would be riding home with me and my dad. And, uh, you know, I remember th- thinking as they got into the, into the car, there's almost nothing that my dad could say that these, these guys aren't going to somehow see a double entendre in. Like, I don't think my dad could say anything, and they're not gonna go, oh, and snicker and smirk and twist it, and it didn't help that my dad blasted Christian radio as we went home. Junior high boys, especially unbelievers, they hate Gaither music, I'm just here to tell you. (laughs) Not one of them became a Christian because of the Gaither music pumped through my dad's stereo. But I was weirdly embarrassed and oddly proud of my dad in those moments, The union hall, the locker room, the teacher's lounge, the steel mill, the school. These are the places, the spaces that we live in. And what do we hear and what is promoted and what is snickered at and what do we do? We delight in the good, but evil, brothers and sisters, we are not to delight in. The world delights in it, we are not to delight in it. God takes no pleasure at all in it. And we definitely shouldn't be entertained by it. And I'll just tell you, one of my, one of my biggest concerns in our, in our church is how modern day entertainment drips into the hearts and minds of our people and our young people a relationship to evil and glamorizes it over and over and over and over again. Such that I fear that many of us are actually not innocent towards evil but are somehow delightfully entertained by evil. Somebody said it this way, Christians should not be entertained by sins Jesus died for. And I wonder What would the Netflix accounts of our church say about our posture towards evil and whether we're actually delighting in what God does not take delight in? What does Game of Thrones do to a Christian man, as one example, or a a hormonal Christian young man? I don't know that I could have survived it. And I just urge us here, friends, we need to apply this to every area of our life, okay? And we can't, in some ways, we can't get away from it, the bird flying over our head, but we can keep it from making a nest in our hair, right? And if you're interested in more on this, I have a chapter in my book, Eyes Wide Open, about how does a Christian redeem these sort of, uh, you know, relationships with stories and novels and entertainment on different kinds, you could check that out. But this is a clear and present danger to the health of our congregation. Now you might say, but I gotta know what the world's thinking. And I gotta know what the world's listening to. And I gotta know what the world is watching so that I can effectively be a witness in this world. And I just wanna say to you, you're stupid. Okay? You just are. You are naive to the way that your soul and, and your heart works. I'll give you one example. I have a good friend, okay, one of my best friends in college, who went on to be a very significant Christian leader. He had a ton of responsibility. He was in a very high-profile situation. And he, along the way, somehow, he heard about online chat rooms where people get on these chats and the, the express purpose is for, is for hookups. And he was so appalled at it, like, I can't believe anybody would do that. And he thought, you know what, I, I, I need to get on and make, make sure this is true. And so he logged on just to observe. Well, you know what happened? His observation became an obsession, and his obsession became a participation. And he met a woman at a hotel, and he confessed to me later, I didn't even know her name. And you know what that cost him? It cost him his wife. It cost him his family. It cost him his reputation. And it cost him his job. If only he would have been innocent towards what's evil. Beware of curiosity about the deeds of darkness. Fill your heart and mind with what is true and good and beautiful. And again, that doesn't mean that I don't know what the profanity words mean and that I'm overly shocked when you know people say them, but it does mean that I guard my heart against them and I try to fill my heart with good things noble things, things that uplift me. So, you get it? What's the strategy? PhD in what's good? Preschool and what's evil? One more strategy we have here. And I'm calling this wait for it. Okay? I'm sure you're familiar with uh, these videos where, you know, it'll, it'll say, you know, wait for it. Wait for it. And what does that mean? That means eventually if you keep watching this, there's going to be something worth seeing. But it might take a little while. Okay? Wait for it. And with that in mind, look at what Paul says about Satan. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, it is noted that Paul writes the entire book of Romans without mentioning Satan one time. Okay, he might infer a little bit, principalities are in in chapter eight, but there is no mention of Satan in the entire letter of Romans until right here. And at the very least, this means that the aspects of the gospel and living the Christian life, that Satan is not in the foreground, he is in the background. There are some people, they see Satan everywhere they go. He's under every bush, he made me do it, you know. Okay, no. Uh, But that does not mean that he is not really important in the story of redemption Uh, because what we have here this language of satan being crushed harkens back to genesis 3 and do you remember what paul or what paul what god said to to satan right he made a prophecy he said regarding jesus the messiah he will crush your head you will bruise his heel remember that Now, what does the bruises heal? The cross, okay, the cross. What is crushing Satan, though? Well, this is a wait for it thing. Christians, you gotta gotta wait for it. And I'll note that he says, soon. And we look at this, we think, Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, right? (laughs) So, how is that soon? Because it hasn't happened yet. And we have to bear in mind here, friends, that our God A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So for God, Paul wrote this on uh, Friday. (laughs) We're not too long in the story in God's economy of time. Jesus' victory on the cross was a crushing blow to Satan, but it was not a final blow. The Bible tells us that Satan is still alive and well. He is still incredibly powerful. He is still the arch enemy of God. We believe what the Bible says about fallen angels called demons who are active and seeking to influence and to defame the name of God and to frustrate Christians and to divide churches and all the things that, that they want to do. We believe in that. But we also believe that Satan's final chapter is not here yet. And we need to bear this in mind because oftentimes it feels like evil is winning, doesn't it? Think of the year we 've had, we look back at this year, and oftentimes it feels like the, the you know, the dark side is winning, another cultural battle lost, another uh, church divided, another marriage broken, another child prodigal and wayward, and another this and another that it feels you know you can look at these things and you get really discouraged and think man we 're on the losing side here. It feels often like. To be a Christian is to be, you know, we're losing, 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 and we lose sight of the fact that we got to wait for it. And what are we waiting for? When the God of peace crushes Satan. And here is Revelation describing this final moment, Revelation 20. And when the thousand uh, years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, this is Satan, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wait for it. We got to wait for it. And we're still waiting for it. But that does not mean that we don't believe that this is going to happen. And so, therefore, we wait, but we wait patiently. And we wait, uh, you know, we wait wisely. And we wait innocently. And we wait confidently that God is going to crush our enemy under his feet and under our feet as well. And to quote Luther, here's another way to say it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Wait for it. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers No thanks to them abideth, the spirit and the gift. Gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The snake gets crushed. And in the end, we win. Wait for it. Amen.